0: Welcome to Kelly Drye's Full Spectrum Podcast, bringing together thought leaders in the technology, media, and telecommunications industries to discuss legal issues that are expected to impact today's organizations and tomorrow's marketplace. Kelly Drye Full Spectrum is produced twice monthly, and show notes are available at www.kellydryefullspectrum.com. For more in-depth commentary, head to our blog, comlawmonitor.com. All links are in the show notes. This podcast is produced by the Kelly Dry Communications Practice Group. Hello, and welcome to Kelly Dry and Warren's Full Spectrum Podcast. I'm Steve Augustino from the Communications Group, and I'm joined by... Brad Carrier, an associate in the Communications Group. And we're here for our usual monthly discussion of FCC enforcement activities. We have a number of different things uh, to talk with you about um, as the commission has been going through its uh, its normal summertime um, enforcement activities, but before I do that, I actually want to you know thank everybody for doing this, and I want to uh, congratulate Brad, who will be a co-chair of the FCBA's enforcement committee this year. So you'll be sort of taking up some of the enforcement mantle that I had run, uh, did my course on that uh, committee now, but uh, it's in your capable hands. So congratulations, Brad. Thanks, Steve. Yeah. So why don't we? Why don't you go ahead and kick us off here, and let's talk about um, a couple different things in What happened this summer, really?
1: Sure. So we'll start with the big headline item, which is the AT&T 911 outage consent decree. So the FCC reached a $5.25 million settlement in late June with AT&T to resolve investigations into two 911 service outages that occurred back in 2017. Now, the outages last for more than five hours and resulted in approximately 15,000 failed calls to 911 call centers. One thing to point out right out front is that these are so-called sunny day outages. I mean, they weren't caused by weather or some natural disaster, but rather by a network issue caused by human error like a system update. So the settlement was unexpected because, and we had talked about this on a prior podcast, more than a year had passed since the FCC had issued their initial report on the outages, and nothing in the report indicated that enforcement action was on its way. Instead, the report was mostly given over for a discussion of general Best practices that they wanted all carriers to adopt to prevent these kinds of outages.
0: Yeah, I was—I mean, I was pretty surprised at at this because, um, you know, as happens with these types of things, there was a lot of publicity at the time, and Chairman Pai issued a statement that he was—you know—this is important, and they're going to be looking at this very, very closely. They assigned to the Public Safety Bureau. Uh, the responsibility of conducting that report. So again, it sort of showed that we're on the remedial side of this, not on the enforcement side of this. That um, report came out pretty quickly, a couple months or so after the incident itself. And as you said, with no hint of of enforcement. And now when we look at this, actually, it, it suggests that the enforcement phase of this didn't even start up until some months after that public safety report.
1: Yeah, it looks like the report was really about identifying what went wrong and how that could have been prevented, and then it shifted over into more of an investigation of potential rule violations. So I know you're not only surprised that it came out, but we can be surprised also by a couple of things actually contained in the consent decree. I think a big one to focus on is there's a language in there, um, sort of in the introduction before it gets into the actual nitty-gritty of the settlement, talking about how AT&T, quote, disputes the bureau's interpretation of certain rules regarding nine one one outage reporting requirements. Uh, really, it's a pushback on reporting threshold and the process for notifying nine one one call centers. So I know you wanted to dive a little deeper into that as well. Yeah, well, well, it's
0: it's interesting from a, a couple of perspectives on this. I mean, um, one, from the process part of this, we had talked about this, and over time with the enforcement bureau, the Bureau's willingness to um, do settlements without admissions or to rec- its, its interest in requiring admissions has changed over time. And we've talked about that a lot. Um, so I see this, first of all, as an indication that this Enforcement Bureau is much more likely to go back to those older practices, if you will, of allowing for settlements without admissions. Um, so that's significant in and of itself.
1: All right, so digging into some of the other provisions that were finding the consent decree, generally AT&T agreed to implement process de- designed to do a couple of things. So first, identify risks that could result in disruptions to 911 service. Second, protect against such risks. Three, detect 911 outages. Four, Respond to such outages with remedial actions, including notification to affected 911 call centers. That seems to be a repeat point of emphasis by the FCC. And lastly, recover from those outages as soon as practicable. Now, many of those provisions mirror conditions imposed on T-Mobile back in 2015 following similar sunny day outages. Now, now AT&T also agreed to an unusual provision requiring it to develop and submit to the FCC a roadmap with specific objectives and timelines for implementation. Now, usually consent degrees do not get this detailed. So it appears that the FCC is going to exercise continued oversight as this goes forward to make sure AT&T is hitting its compliance benchmarks.
0: Yeah. And and I think that's significant um, here because, you know, first of all, it's AT&T that they're looking over the shoulder of, which is, you know, unusual. I've seen something like this, but only in the instance where I felt in that situation, the FCC maybe didn't think the carrier who was the subject of it was up to the task. But But here, I think the motivation seems a little different. It seems that desire by the commission to ensure the remedial actions are taken to ensure there are best practices to really try to stop these going forward. So they've taken an in my mind, an unusual level of interest in how AT&T is gonna prevent these in the future.
1: Right, and it's not just oversight from without, there's oversight from within provisions because another thing that AT&T agreed to was to conduct periodic periodic audits of its network systems and make sure that it has the approval at the vice presidential level for all network upgrades that could potentially affect critical 911 network assets. Now, these conditions are designed to push carriers like AT&T into adopting internal best practices that reduce the likelihood of service outages caused by network updates or other non-weather-related, non-act of God type stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and
0: you know, and and before to, let's let's look at this big picture again here before we, uh, you know, before we close out on this, um, you know, the enforcement actions are predicated on certain specific obligations, right? When there's the easiest one for the commission and probably the one that's most defined is the obligation to report outages. Um, When a carrier or an entity has an outage, it has to report both to the FCC that the outage has occurred, uh, but also then to the PSAPs who are affected. And that really has driven a lot of these settlements and a lot of the discussions. You know, there's a clear obligation to do so and a clear time frame to do so. And a lot of what you covered there, you know, covers that reporting obligation uh, as well. Um, One thing that's interesting that we, you know, we didn't get into a little bit earlier, and I want to make sure we do cover it, is that the Enforcement Bureau here also was acting on a viewpoint that they have that is pretty controversial within the industry as to the obligation to route 911 calls. Um, There are provisions in the rules, uh, 64.3001 and 3.3002, that require carriers to route calls to PSAPs um, on the timeline as set forth in 3002, which talks uh, explicitly about um, when a PSAP comes on board and when they notify you that they're ready to start accepting calls from 911 versus um, other other, uh, call methods and all. Um, And that uh, has been used as a general obligation, really, in only one enforcement case in the past. That was the Hinton Telephone case from three years ago now, maybe, right? probably a little bit more than that. And since then, it's been hinted at and uh, discussed in other enforcement actions. Um, there were several settlements in um, 20, late 2015, early 2016, that 3001 was mentioned um, but there was no admissions on it and no sort of no explicit agreement one way or the other on, on those. And what was one thing that was interesting to me here was that the Enforcement Bureau seems to still believe that 64.3001 theory, that it is a general obligation to complete the 911 call. So any 911 outage, in my mind, in their view, is coming is a violation of that particular provision, 64.3001.
1: Right. And that's why it's so interesting, again, turn back, you know, that, that that preliminary language about at t disputing the commission's interpretation of all those rules. So they're setting their benchmark. At the same time, the FCC is still saying that they have theirs.
0: Right, right. And the, car- yeah, the carriers are not yet agreeing to that. And um, that will be the thing to watch is, you know, if there's... Another sunny day outage or something else? is, you know? Does that come about?
1: Right. So to, I mean, take the point home. The settlement shows that the FCC has remained committed to enforcing nine one one rules, and that any interference with access to emergency services. Looks like it's going to result in an enforcement action, probably including a significant monetary penalty. So carriers of all sizes need to make sure they have safeguards in place, like the types of best practices described in the item, to avoid these sort of accidental 911 outages.
0: Absolutely. That's a a big takeaway from this.
1: Okay. So now if we turn to something that's a little bit different, but something we've definitely talked about on the podcast before, which is equipment marketing violations, which has uh, certainly become a key area of focus for the PI FCC for enforcement. And one thing we've been seeing this uptick in is LED sign enforcement. So Over just the last three months, and I've been checking this almost daily, the FCC settled at this point nearly 15 investigations involving the marketing of LED signs used in digital billboards without the required authorizations, labeling, or user manual disclosures. Now, So so let's back up again.
0: LED signs is within the FCC's enforcement because why?
1: Well, and that's the thing. This is one of the things you would not usually expect this, but the signs emit radio waves that can interfere with communication services, mostly commercial wireless services. So that's something where... There will be complaints that will come into the FCC, actually through probably the FCC's field offices. Those will be routed up to HQ in DC. There will probably be further testing that will be done, often with the agents on site, and that's how these investigations get going.
0: So, but so we're talking about like the fancy billboards in Times Square and, and other places, those types of signs. Yeah, I
1: mean you know LED covers a lot uh, really, but um, you know these the signs that seem to be there seem to be dealing with these man manufactured or retailers of LED signs that are being used in commercial businesses, seems to be the case. Um, Now, the settlements contain the standard FCC compliance obligations, so we don't need to get into that, but a few key facts should be highlighted. So first, the FCC initiated each of these investigations in response to a complaint. So like we were talking about before, it's, it's unclear whether or not the, all these complaints came from the same source, but wireless carriers often inform the FCC when they identify lighting systems as the source of interference on their spectrum. And usually they'll provide that sort of testing data to FCC field agents to help out in the investigation.
0: Yeah, so I, I think this shows that this is not only a priority for the FCC, but it's a priority for those entities who are being interfered with by these signs.
1: That's right. So second, the companies, it appears, didn't require conduct the required testing until after the FCC started the investigations, until they were basically put on notice that they were being investigated. So that implies a compliance breakdown somewhere in the supply chain regarding who was responsible for ensuring the devices met FCC specifications. Third, all of the companies brought their LED displays into compliance prior to reaching a settlement agreement with the FCC. And the FCC usually sees basically getting your house in order, coming into compliance as a necessary condition before settlement, sometimes even a necessary condition before they'll even talk about settlement.
0: Yeah. So, so what it, what that really means, if, if you're a sign manufacturer or a retailer of these LED signs, and when you get that first inquiry from the FCC, it means that you have a broader compliance issue that you have to look at and fix. So it's, you know, some of these you'll say, oh, well, it's a $7,000 fine or $5,000, whatever it is. Um, But it's more than that. It's a bigger problem for you once the FCC comes knocking.
1: Yeah, because it potentially impacts your entire supply chain and you have to go and try to figure out where the problem lies. The other thing is, too, is that until the testing is done, you're left with inventory that cannot be sold under the FCC's rules. Uh, One last thing I'll mention, I mean, all of these targets were first-time violators. And the FCC is not required to give warnings to entities that market devices that require an FCC equipment authorization. Basically, there's an exception to that, that rule that if you're not an FCC licensee, you usually have to receive, you know, a warning, a notice, a citation beforehand. But if you're doing something that requires an FCC license to begin with, a great example is Pirate Radio. If you're doing something that would have required a license to begin with, you don't get a, a first warning before they'll go after you for a fine.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yet again, another indicator, right, if you're somebody who gets one of these and doesn't have FCC counsel, that you need to bring somebody experienced in pretty quickly because you're not going to get by with just a warning here. You are facing the enforcement and the o- other obligations that come with it, and you need to know what that is and know how to process through that. So, when again, when you get – when the FCC is coming – that's significant, and you need to react to that.
1: Yeah. So will briefly close, actually, on an item that's not really interesting because of its content. It's really interesting because it just exists at all. And this deals with uh, an amateur radio settlement with the Department of Justice. So right before the 4th of July holiday, the FCC and the Department of Justice announced a settlement with an amateur radio operator for intentionally causing interference to other amateur operators and failing to provide station identification. Now, the amateur radio... Rules are, you know, not for today's discussion. But a big aspect of the whole concept of amateur radio is sharing the spectrum. And so, um, you know, the case is interesting for a couple of reasons. First, as we've mentioned on, on prior podcasts, the FCC doesn't have the legal authority to sue individuals in court to collect fines directly. Instead, the FCC refers uncollected fines to the DOJ, which then must bring suit. Now. Prosecutors are often unwilling or unable, due to resource constraints, to pursue those referrals. Yeah, and it's it's actually, I mean, I
0: I've had a little bit of visibility into this through uh, a case that we had had worked one time, and uh, yeah, it's you know, it, there's a tendency to think that the forfeiture order is the end of the whole situation, and it's not. It doesn't mean that the FCC collects that. It doesn't mean that anything else happens on that at that point. And from what I saw, you know, this type of situation was the one that's more likely to lead to enforcement. That is, against somebody who is intentionally interfering or causing interference, even if it's individuals. And even though it's generally a small number um, versus the other cases brought against carriers for large numbers, Surprisingly, I didn't find as many enforcement actions against those types of entities. Um, maybe those carriers paid them. that might be a part of it and just paid it without going into it. But the FCC tended there to only do it whenever the company was already bank, or I should say the DOJ, not the FCC right. Mm-hmm. The DOJ there tended to bring them only after the company was already bankrupt or had closed up shop or whatever. So there really wasn't any challenge or pushback here apparently or possibly this radio operator would have challenged the finding.
1: No, absolutely. In fact, you know, throughout, you know, there were often the steps where any of this could have been paid, settled, moved on, but no. So that's why it reached the point where prosecutors in Pennsylvania in this case agreed to take up the case sort of to enforce this cooperative nature of the amateur radio spectrum. Now, this operator, by all the Reports issued at the time of the settlement is a particularly bad actor. Looks like it was basically monopolizing use of the spectrum. So you have a situation where really there was no amateur radio if you were trying to broadcast at the same time as this guy. Right. Yeah, and and that
0: certainly could have fed into the decision here by the local district attor- local U.S. attorney to bring the case.
1: Yeah, and so let's talk about the other sort of interesting aspect about this. So um, you know the FCC doesn't enforce its own fines; they don't take you to court. So you're dealing with a a new uh, decision maker, a new fact finder, a new prosecutor here in the DOJ. And the DOJ, it has been the experience it looks like indicated here looking at what the FCC had done and looking at what they were discussing about with the settlement that the amateur operator settled, settled for about half of the fine originally imposed by the FCC. So just like you said, it demonstrates that the forfeiture order is not the final word on any FCC monetary penalties. Not a dollar changes hands when the forfeiture order gets issued. Right. Right. And it also potentially,
0: you know, it there's a different decision maker who has different policy interests and concerns, right? You're talking with the Department of Justice and the U.S. attorney who's balancing this caseload of all these other cases and trying to decide how important is this. So it might be a major priority for the FCC, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a priority for DOJ.
1: Right. So there's, you know, at the end of the day, I think the take-home message is, is that enforcement targets always are going to have at least one more bite at the apple with the DOJ, even if the DOJ takes up the fine in the first place. Yeah, no. And it's
0: something to look at um, to be careful with if you're on the receiving end of that. You know, I've often speculated as to whether or not we're going to see an increase in this, uh, this type of activity and an increase in these cases. Um, if you want to challenge the legal issues that the FCC bases its enforcement on, for example, you very likely would have to go this route of challenging the collection action to get that heard by an independent uh, member of the judiciary instead of through the agency itself. Right. So so that's the watch. Anyway, um, so what should have been a nice, quiet, lazy summer turned out not quite to be that. There are a couple of uh, pretty interesting cases in front of the FCC then. Um, now, we're looking at the fall coming around, and we will see a number of issues uh, probably picked up as the agency tries to get things done before the end of the fiscal year and the end of the calendar year. So I imagine that in future podcasts like this, we're going to have a lot to talk to. I hope you all will continue to listen to us, We look forward to our next ones, subscribe to us on on iTunes and elsewhere. And we'll be back soon. Thank you. The views and ideas expressed on this program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily
1: reflect the views or ideas held by Kelly Dry and Warren LLP, its staff, or management.